Let's open up in prayer as we look at God's word together this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, we are dependent for you for every single thing. Not just the things where we don't think that we are particularly skilled, even the things that we put in great preparation for, even the things that we think we are quite capable of. Lord, when we come to your word, even as we look at familiar things, we need your help to fully understand the full importance of it. I need your help to explain it clearly and for it to have any effect in me and in in any of us. And so, Lord, we look to you and we ask for your spirit to work in every single one of us, uh, that we might see something more of the beauty of who you are and what you have done. And, Lord, that we might uh, grow nearer and closer to you. And may we know the joy of living under you as, as our rightful king. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's lots of things in this life I don't understand, but here's just one of them. The concept of lining up overnight or for an extended period of time to get a mobile phone when it gets released. Now, I've never lined up outside of a shop for anything for myself. However, because your parents here, you've got to embarrass them. Once I've lined up outside of a shop with my dad, and he's loving the fact he got a mention, outside Aldi. How weird is that, that people line up on catalogue days outside of a supermarket to get stuff, and all the old ladies are there pushing their way around. Dad was there to get some tennis rackets. I just had a list of all of the grocery things that need to get done, and I kind of felt like I should get into it, kind of like, need to get out of the way, I need to get me some vegetables, but I, I didn't get in there with the same level of enthusiasm. But last year in November, iPhone X was launched, And here's a group of guys who camped outside the Apple store for a week to get a phone. And you know what? They probably, during that week, probably spent most of their time playing on their prehistoric iPhone 8, just waiting to have the next phone. It's not that they didn't have a phone, but they'd seen all the ads and they wanted the latest and the greatest They're probably the sort of guys who spent ages researching all of the details, watching all the pre-release reviews, knowing all the things about it. They just wanted to have for themselves this wonderful thing that has been promised by them. It consumed every single thing about them. As we've gone through the Bible from start to finish, we've spoken about God's united plan in terms of kingdom. Whereas God is our rightful king because he created all things and that he desires to have a people in his place and because he's a good and perfect king to be under his rule is the wonderful place of blessing. And we've seen right from the, the pattern of the kingdom back in the Garden of Eden all the way through that it was always heading towards a perfected kingdom. And sometimes I wonder... Were these blokes hanging outside the Apple store more consumed, more looking forward to having a latest iPhone than God's children are for the return of Jesus and the perfect kingdom? It shouldn't be, should it? For such a thing as a mobile phone that people are so consumed by it, so driven by it, are we driven? Are we consumed? Are we passionate about the fact that one day Jesus will return and everything that we've promised, everything we're longing for, will come to us. 
Today we're in our last of this series, part seven of seven, where we look at that perfected kingdom. As we've gone through, we've called this series His Story, God's Unfolding Plan of Redemption. And we're looking at the Bible, not as a, just a collection of unrelated events, but showing how the Bible from the beginning to the end is one united, cohesive story, all centred on Jesus Christ, as God had planned even before the foundation of the world to unite all things under him, according to Ephesians 1.10. The very centre of these plans is Jesus. We've described this overview kind of like the, the picture on the front of a jigsaw puzzle box that shows you how all of it fits together, how all of these parts contribute to this one big picture with Jesus front and centre. And today we put that final piece in place as we look at the perfected kingdom. Once more, we'll look at the story so far, so where we've come so far. And because it's the last one, we're kind of doing a summary of where we've been. So we'll probably spend just as much time looking at where we've been as we are looking at uh, the content of the perfected kingdom. And then lastly, when we wrap it up, how then should we live? So in terms of the story so far, We've always spoken about the Bible from beginning to end in terms of kingdom, where God is the king of all things, who desires to have a people for himself in his place, underneath his rule. Not just because he's sort of arrogant, but because underneath his rule is the place we were created for. It is the place of ultimate blessing. And we saw the pattern of what this looks like in the Garden of Eden. We saw the pattern of the kingdom where God's people were Adam and Eve, in God's place in the Garden of Eden. And while they're underneath his rule, they had all the wonderful, perfect blessings. Perfect relationship with God, with one another, and with the creation. And as long as they recognised him as their rightful king and their rightful ruler, they continued to enjoy all of the perfect and wonderful blessings that we could ever hope for. The time when that turned was when they decided they wanted to step outside of God's rule. The very tree that God had said, do not eat from this tree or you will surely die. They decided, God's not the ultimate ruler. I will decide for myself. And as they stepped outside of the rule of God, we had the perish kingdom. Where nobody is any longer God's people. They were outside of God's place as a punishment for their rebellion. And because they had taken themselves outside of God's rule, the result for their disobedience was curse. But throughout this series, we've seen that even at the big moments of human sin and rebellion, God's plans do not get thwarted and undone. Genesis 3.15, right after, the, right after the fall of Adam and Eve, we see the first gospel promise that God promises one of the offspring of the women would crush the serpent who would reverse the effects of evil in this world. Then through a few up and downs, we get to another colossal failure, Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel where the people think they're all big and strong and mighty, they don't need God, they're going to build this tower and make a name for themselves. God confuses the languages and scatters the people, but his plans aren't finished. In the next chapter, in chapter 12, God makes promises to Abraham regarding a people, place and blessing. Have a promised kingdom where God's people were Abraham's offspring, in God's place of the promised land of Canaan, And underneath his rule, there'll be blessing to both Israel and to all nations. 
that in itself is wonderful news, became even greater news when the Apostle Paul tells us that the one to whom the blessing to all nations would come is the singular offspring of Abraham in Jesus Christ. But as we turn to the book of Exodus, they weren't in God's place living under his rule. They were in Egypt living under an oppressive pharaoh. And there on the mountain, God promised to Moses, when I bring you out of Egypt, just as he promised back to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15, you will come here and you will serve me. God called them out of the kingdom of Pharaoh into his own kingdom to be his own special people. So we see the kingdom prepared where the God's people are the Israelites wandering around the wilderness. God's presence is uh, temporarily in the tabernacle and God gives them his law as a means of establishing his rule and to its expression of his character and also there are blessings for being under his rule. But when they entered the land under Joshua, just like Moses had foretold in Deuteronomy chapter 17, they did ask for a king. And they got a king, they got a monarchy, but they didn't get the type of king they were looking for. What they were asked for, said, we want a king like all the other nations. We want a king who in and of himself is strong, powerful, and has all authority. But the outlines that God said for having a king in Deuteronomy 17 was one who would meditate on God's law day in, day out, that he would rule according to God's standards, so he'd be like as God's representative Uh, on this world so we'd see God's rule expressed through the king there'd been a previous promise back in Genesis 49 verse 10 that from the line of Judah there would come king after king until the one to whom the kingdom belonged came then there would be an everlasting king and the obedience of nations would be his for a moment people might have wondered if that would be David But through the prophet Nathan, David is told in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, it will be one of his offspring whom God would give an everlasting kingdom. Sadly, after the death of Solomon, the kingdom is split into two. You've got the Israel in the north who get eventually, because of their idolatry, get taken out by the Assyrians. Then you've got Judah in the south who a little bit later on are taken by the Babylonians. While it's not looking good for God's people, they're not in the land, they're not showing God the honour that he's worthy of, but still through the ministry of the prophets, God reveals more and more of his kingdom plans. There's words of judgement, but there's also words of hope, where God speaks of, of a new people, a new Israel, according to Isaiah 49.6, including from all nations. A new place, he speaks of a new temple in Ezekiel 40 to 48. Of a new creation in Isaiah 65 and 66. A new covenant as a means of expressing God's rule in Jeremiah 31. And a new king. We said as we went through that one, it kind of looks like we're getting to a climax here, isn't it? For God is making new things. He's doing something new. We're coming to a climax. And we were. We then looked at the present kingdom. On the arrival of the King Jesus Christ, so also came the arrival of the kingdom, who according to Mark in chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
Repent and believe in the gospel. No surprise that this is where the central focus has been because God's plan has always been to unite all things under Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, that all of the promises of God find their amen, find their yes in Jesus Christ. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus said to those guys, beginning with the pro- Moses and all of the prophets, explained in the scriptures all the things concerning himself. To the Pharisees, Jesus said in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures because you think in them that they have life. But it is they that bear witness to me, yet you will not see and come to me. But as Jesus came to do what he did, to die, be raised again, seated on the right hand of the Father, where he would be sitting on the throne. Peter, the famous Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, says that this Jesus has been raised to the right hand of the Father. When David foresaw and spoke of one who would sit on his throne forever, he said he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. And at Pentecost we also have the coming of the Holy Spirit. And through the Spirit that unites a people of God from all nations. And through the Spirit indwelling God's people, the church itself becomes the place, the temple of God. And as people come united with God through Christ, they live under his rule and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So there's where we've been so far. But as we come to the perfected kingdom, this is the grand finale. Everything we did as we went through the Old Testament was looking forward, was pointing us toward Jesus. Jesus came and secured every single thing that we needed. But then when he comes again, everything which he has secured will be perfected and will be completed. To illustrate just a couple of those things, by his death and resurrection, our sins are forgiven. But at the return of Christ, sin will be removed completely. At Jesus' death and resurrection, Satan is defeated. But at his return, he'll be punished forever, never to torment God's people ever again. By Jesus' death and resurrection, death is defeated. At his return, death will be removed forever. By Jesus' death and resurrection, we are declared righteous. When he returns, those who are his will be made actually righteous. As Ray gave us the reading from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 7, I can't imagine a single person who wouldn't read those words and think, that's what I want. That's the type of world I want to live in. Particularly, look at verses 3 and 4. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I can't imagine a single person says, no, it doesn't sound very good to me. I don't want to be in a world that looks like that. But what I find even stranger is even amongst Christians, when they read this passage, they're saying, I can't wait to look forward to a day when there's no death, there's no pain, there's no crying, there's no suffering, no mourning. 
What about the fact that we dwell with God eternally? Is that a little, not a little bit more exciting than the temporal or the, the minor blessings of just not having sickness and death? But even just on those surface things, no tears, death, mourning, pain, etc. Imagine if you could offer that to someone in this life, how much people would actually give to have those things. People would willingly give millions of dollars to have those things, wouldn't they? Yet every single one of these, and in the presence of the God who created us, can be yours for all eternity. This perfect world is God's design. It's an expression of his goodness. If you want to know what God is like as a king, look back to the Garden of Eden. That's what it's like to live under the king. Look here in Revelation 21. That's what it looks like. That's an expression of what type of a king our God is. It's perfection. All of the mess we see in this world isn't because he's a dud king. All of the mess we see in this world is because of people who have rebelled against him, decided we'll be king, we'll do our own thing, and we make a terrible mess of it. Whenever you see people perfectly under God's rule, it's a wonderful, beautiful picture. And I can't understand why anyone would want to live in rebellion to this loving creator. But in these verses, we see these things that we've measured as an expression of kingdom. We see a place where God speaks of a new heavens and a new earth. We see the rule and blessing where he says, I will be their God. There's a cockroach here. Happy birthday, everybody. Who said we don't do giveaways in the sermons here? Cockroach going free to anyone who wants it. And it says, and the people, they will be his people. But who is that they that will be his people and enjoy these blessings? Does it mean everybody? Well, the only time that everyone is the people of God was right in the beginning when God created Adam and Eve. When the king returns, there will be a final and eternal divide between the righteous and the unrighteous. No grey matter in between, two distinct categories. In Revelation 21, it expresses it in this way. The one who conquers will have this heritage, the one that we've just spoken about. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. But Jesus... He's opened the way into this perfect kingdom. Remember, Jesus says, I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Because he bore the punishment that paid the price for our sin, which kept us from God. And because he was the only one who could achieve that for us, he is the only way to the Father. But the good news unlike the Garden of Eden, is those who are God's people now will be God's people forever. When John speaks about in the first chapter, all who received him he became, gave the right to become children of God. Jesus later spoke this way in chapter 6 of that same gospel. I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Notice there he even repeats pretty much the same thing twice, saying, this is the will of God, that all who look to the Son, all who trust in him, he will raise on the last day. Now, if you've got any concept of God being all-powerful and sovereign, if Jesus can say, this is God's will, that this will happen, it will happen. So how then shall we live? It's funny as you think about those guys lined up outside the Apple store. Here they are with a perfectly functioning iPhone 8. I don't know how they charged it for that whole week. They probably had their friends bringing in power banks or they had a big stock of them, who knows. But they didn't want to just be content with that phone, did they? They wanted to have an experience of the latest and greatest thing that had been promised to them. I reckon if you went down a couple of days beforehand, if you had a prototype that might not have been the final release, but was something in between what they already had and what they were looking for, they would have given you big bucks for it because they longed for something more. They longed for a glimpse of what they'd been promised. And I wonder, how seriously and how deeply, by comparison, we long for the return of Christ and his perfect kingdom. I wonder how consumed we are by it, how much we even think about it, where we long to see him perfectly, where we long to live in a place where sin doesn't exist at all, where we can worship him and praise him for eternity. Or is it slightly possible there's a little part of it says, I hope he doesn't come soon. Is it possible there's a part of it says, I hope he doesn't come soon because I want to get this particular promotion at work or I want to go on this holiday or I want to achieve this. Is it possible? A bit silly, isn't it? I mean, you'd have to ask, are you kidding yourself? That you would honestly wish that Jesus would delay because you've got plans for a holiday, a relationship or a promotion. Is our concept of, of an attorney with Jesus that dull that these things might look attractive as though we're going to be missing out on something if he was to come sooner? If you think Adam and Eve had it good, I don't think that's even a glimpse of what we have awaiting us. But this access to the perfected kingdom isn't automatically given to all. Last week we spoke about how Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25, probably the most detail he gives speaking about his return. At the end of Matthew 25 he says, Some, he'll say, those who are righteous say, come, inherit the kingdom that's been prepared for you before the foundation of the world. But others will go off into an eternal judgment. That's why Jesus had to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. 
Because what did we see right from the beginning? We had the pattern under God's rule and blessing. Wonderful. The moment they stepped outside of his, once they rebelled against the king or what we call sin, they were outside. They'd lost that perfect relationship and that access to the presence of God. We can never pay back for what we have lost, for what we have done. The only way possible is that God himself came into this world in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and he bore our punishment upon ourselves so that he could say, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. I have provided the way that's dealt with your sin so that you can, by trusting in me, come to the Father. might seem a pretty huge claim for Jesus to say that he can forgive our sin, that he's got power over sin, death and Satan. But the same Jesus rose again on the third day, proving his power over every single one of those. And we can have absolute confidence when he comes that he can do as he's promised back in John 6, that he will raise us up on the last day to be with him. And this king is coming again. Philippians 2 says, And every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For some will be, here comes the Lord, the one who I'm trusting with, who has dealt with my sin, who's going to say, inherit that kingdom that I've prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Or for some, it may be, he was the Lord. All this time I denied it. He was the Lord and now he's come and here I am as a rebel against him. As one who will have to take the consequences upon myself for my rebellion rather than trusting Jesus who had taken them upon himself. So if we are people longing for a perfected kingdom, and if we have the kingdom values of having a love for a neighbour, wouldn't we want to see the people we know inherit this wonderful blessings of an eternity with him? That's why the gospel's called good news, because it is. And it's good news for every single person you'll ever meet. Because every single person is born into this world, has descended from from Adam, has inherited that sin nature under God's wrath, to whom Jesus has come into the world, he has died. By trusting in him and living again under his rule, we can enter into that wonderful kingdom. But I wonder when we say we long for eternity with him, like people were there with their iPhone saying, I want to have this now. I may not be able to get it right this very second, but I want as much of this as I can possibly have. What does it look like to be a people with that sort of level of expectation? This is how the biblical writers put it. 2 Peter 3, 10 to 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earths and the works on it that will be done will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Or John in 1 John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know, what, know that when he, when he does appear, 
we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So the biblical writers say, if this is your hope, to live in a life, in a world where righteousness dwells, to live in a place where we'll see him and we'll be like him, shouldn't we desire to become more like him and to know him more deeply in this world? Because if that's not the desire of our heart now, you might start to think, why am I saying this is ultimately where I want to go? To the Philippians, Paul says in 3.20, we are citizens of heaven and we are eagerly awaiting a saviour from there. And if we long for that day, we will want to long to share that good news so others can long and eagerly await for that saviour also. But the challenge to us is to live like you're longing for it. To live like we actually desire to a life that is marked by holiness. To live like we actually desire the presence of God, to enjoy him, to praise him. To be doing what Romans 8 says, to be putting to death by the spirit the deeds of the flesh. Seeking Jesus now, enjoying Jesus now. Because if that's what we long for and that's where we're headed. If people can long and desire and crave after a new phone, how much more should the children of God long and crave for more and more of what God has promised for us? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, sometimes we are so easily distracted by the things that we can physically see or that we can tangibly see a timeline of when we can have. But Lord, sometimes we, I just ask that you would give us a, a deeper sense of, of who you are, what you have done, but also a deeper sense of anticipation, of expectation and longing to, to be with you for all eternity. Well, this isn't a fairy tale we read about. This is the very promises of God. This is the very trajectory for which you created us for. And Lord, I pray that uh, if there be anyone who don't, doesn't know you and how they can come to know you through Jesus Christ, that, Lord, that they would uh, have heard the wonderful thing of what Jesus has done to do with our sin, to make it possible that we could be called children of God. Children who will one day stand before you and to which you'll say, inherit the kingdom that I have prepared for you. We will enjoy your presence forevermore where there will be no death, no suffering, no pain, no mourning but even more, just the joy of enjoying you forever. And we thank you that you have graciously offered this for us and you provided the way for us. In Jesus' name, amen.